0: Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So at The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Russell, that's Zach, that's Ryan. Guys, we are digging in. If I look giddy, if I look excited, it's because like I said last week, and I teed it up, this is my favorite book of the Old Testament. And like, People, you know, it's kind of, you know, the easy ones are like Genesis, Exodus, you know, First Samuel, like those are like the cool kids ones and everyone's got their Proverbs and they got their coffee cups. No, for me, it's Nehemiah. I get super excited and super giddy about the the stories that are going on in Nehemiah. Um, and what we're going to do is for anyone that's, that's read Nehemiah before, Typically, when you get into a book like this, it would be really, really important to do a somewhat lengthy historical setup because obviously, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah are typically like taught together and basically Ezra bleeds into Nehemiah and those types of things. We're not going to do a whole lot of that today. Because Nehemiah three is there's there's not a whole lot there in terms of what's going on because Nehemiah three gets into who's working on what areas of of the walls and everything and, and we'll get there so we're gonna spend a lot of time in Nehemiah three talking about the whole context of what we're even talking about here but just in general Nehemiah likely takes place you know what's written down here takes place between 445 and 432 BC and this is in the Persian Empire in the Near East um, and so I'm actually gonna just kind of read through this and maybe we can take some some different chunks here. And then we'll kind of break down the different parts of this story. And as of the recording of this guys, I've not done my, my throat surgery yet. So who knows what was going to end up looking like this. So in order to save me, I'm going to have you smart guys read a little bit. So Russell, how about you go ahead and read uh, Nehemiah versus uh, Nehemiah one versus one through three, three, and then we'll dig in from there.
1: Oh, great. It's got the fun words there. Yeah. Don't
0: mess up. I was like, I just, I don't want to be sound dumb by mispronouncing things. So have fun.
1: You're good. Uh, so I'm reading from NASB. Uh, so first one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire.
0: So, The thing about this is, so to break down a couple of things. So the month of Kislev, that's the ninth month. So we're, we're looking like November, December. That's uh, the time period. The other cool thing about this is you can just easily buzz through that stuff. You know, especially if you're a red letter person and you just don't want to dig into any detail, but this is almost like, Hey, test us in this. Like, this is a historical fact that you can go back and check out. And so, uh, the 20th year that's also mentioned there in verse one, like this would be, um, during Artaxerxes's reign, and so this would be approximately thirteen years or so after Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem. And again, we'll, we'll get probably way more into that when we discuss Nehemiah three. But then in verse three, uh, the, the walls were likely destroyed. And if you want a reference to when this potentially happened, because they don't know for sure for sure, but Ezra four verses seven through twenty three, that's likely. The description of what happened that caused this damage uh, in Jerusalem to begin with. There are a couple of other uh, thoughts in terms of what that looks like. That one in my research seemed to be the most likely, but I did find it interesting that he even inquired as to the status of the city. And that's one of the things that talks about because there was another thing that was destroyed earlier. And it, so it would have been like old hat, like, yeah, they've been destroyed. But as we'll see here in a second, he seemed to be genuinely shocked at, you know, basically the, the, the status of what was happening there in that area. So was there anything else from, of the, from the first three verses there? Because that's really just kind of a, a springboard for the rest of it. But was there anything else that you guys saw from, from your commentaries?
1: I think that was uh, something that came up in, in several commentaries that I read just that candidly he was interested in his people right so he's he's in the persian empire and and you'll find later and he's a cupbearer so he's like got status and he's right next to the king of persia but he really wants to know what's going on back in jerusalem he really wants to know what's going on back then and he really cared about his people and he cared about the heritage mm-hmm. and he knew that um you know what he knew the prophecies that were you know um stated for jerusalem and so um i think for us kind of the takeaway there is, you know, I can't be ignorant to what's going on around me. And, and, uh, and I know that, you know, it's convicting for me as I think about that. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss to be honest. And, and in our world today, there's a lot of negative things going on. And a lot of things going on, um, even geopolitically that I'm unaware of and, and I need to be more aware of it. I mean, I think the Lord wants me to be more aware of it because it impacts you know, what I can pray for and how I can um, be involved. So I just think that his um, desire to want to know what's going on in Jerusalem is important.
0: That's good, for sure. Anything else on those first three verses, guys?
2: Yeah, I thought it was um, just providential how that, um, you know, he was put into that place of power in the Persian kingdom, um, the cupbearer, basically the right-hand man to the king at the time. And then he hears, you know, about Jerusalem, which had been destroyed for quite a while, I understand. And he hears that and he's just immediately affected by his people. Like Russell said, like, bam, just hit him right in the heart. And he was like, okay, at some point, I've got to figure out how I can be helpful. And just uh, to me, how God was preparing that for so long, you know, through um, however long Jerusalem had been destroyed before Nehemiah had even heard of it, God's preparing this part of scripture. And then how, you know, if Nehemiah hadn't inquired, You know, do the walls get rebuilt? Is Jerusalem what it is today? It just uh, really was uh, providential for me when I was reading it.
0: Yeah, go ahead and read verse 4 for us, Zach.
2: As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven.
0: So there are like four key words to me in that, and so we're reading the the ESV uh, here on this side. Wept, mourned, fasting, praying. He's doing all those things for the status of a city he's never been to.
2: Yeah, and it's 800 miles away. Never been there. Yeah, it's like I was just saying, just really blew me away that he was even that affected just from hearing that the walls were burned down.
0: I can't even think of a corollary today because typically, you know, did everybody grow up in Oklahoma?
1: Nope. Where'd you grow up? Arkansas, Texas.
0: Arkansas, Texas. Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Iowa. Iowa, Oklahoma. So I feel like people, when you don't grow up and, it's like different if it's like L.A. or Seattle or Miami or New York or something like that. But everyone's got like pride for their hometown. You know, you had pride for your high school, especially if you're an athlete, like because you were wearing your town's name on your chest when you went into enemy territory and, you know, defended your town against this other town. Like it's kind of like when people describe what modern day sports is. It's like this is what keeps us from killing each other, because back in the day we would just kill the people from the other tribes. But now it's like we pretend to kill them like by playing football or baseball or wrestling or something like that. But <clears throat> That always struck me with this story. The first time I realized that, wait, he's never been there? Like, I don't have a connection to my, well, my dad's hometown is my same hometown, but like, let's say it was different. Like, who has that level of connection where the status of the walls, right, would lead you to weep, mourn, fast, and pray? That's like a hint from the very beginning. There's something way bigger happening here than crumbled, ruinous walls. Because in this time period, like was the first thing that you did when you conquered a people you destroyed their walls and then you destroyed their people
2: but right. i mean yeah, that, if you destroy their walls and they're it, basically their temple their town then you erase their history right so yeah and the only thing that i could think of reading through that was um you know being from oklahoma and natural disasters of tornadoes you know you hear about a tornado in a small town out in western oklahoma and it just took out the whole town everybody in oklahoma understands like we got to come around these people and we have to help them. And what can I do to help? But it's never struck me like it struck Nehemiah here to drop everything I'm doing and travel 800 miles away and try to rebuild their house. You know, of course I want to do that, but I know what's going to happen without me. Nehemiah actually follows through and is just, it was very impressive reading through there.
3: Well, it kind of brings up, uh, what's his name with the Arizona Cardinals? Um, Pat, Pat Tillman? I, Tillman, Pat Tillman. And how, I don't, you know, maybe he set foot in New York City. I don't know. But I can tell you, when, you know, I've never set foot in New York City. When I saw 9-11 happen, uh, I was a sophomore in high school. But still, I mean, like, there was mourning. There was lament in what happened there. And you look at somebody like Pat Tillman, who gave up a career in the NFL to go out and fight the war on terror after what he saw happened in 9-11. So, that's actually
0: a really good point because it's like, there's this attachment to these are my people, not New Yorkers. Americans, right. and so you attach yourself. And I know uh, when you get into psychological literature, there's a lot of attachment to groups. And so it's like you know you have your immediate group, which is your family, and then you have your neighborhood, and then you have maybe your, your church or your synagogue or your mosque or whatever. And you have these like concentric circles of connection to different people. But that is really interesting, and that that you know plays into Zach's point there, to where it's like I've grabbed my chainsaw and driven to a city in Oklahoma that I didn't even know existed because a tornado came through and I knew that there were going to be people with limbs down and, you know, trash that needed to be picked up. And it's like, that's ministry like that. That's just walking the neighborhood, asking people if if you could help them. And again, like you never know when these disasters will strike, but like that's, you're, you're literally being the church. You're, you're being the feet of Christ in that moment. So yeah, I didn't really think about that. That's actually a really good point about, yeah. Pat Tillman probably had never been to New York before.
1: I, I don't think you want, don't miss the point though, that like, Look what it says. It says, "When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of Heaven." Yes. Yeah. So before I, I mean, before I jumped and grabbed my chainsaw, chainsaw or whatever, I mean, I mourned and I prayed, and he asked for God's direction and what he should do there. Um, and and I think that's really important. And you know, a question I was going to pose to you guys is, you know, the concept of fasting. Um, I mean, in modern America, you know, is that something that that you guys even have have practiced or do practice or um, you know, for, cause for me, um, you know, it's still a relatively new thing. I mean, there've been, you know, times when I'm trying to have extended time with the Lord or, you know, I've fasted for those seasons. But, um, I would say it's, it's post children that I've really had the seasons of my life where, you know, I'm fasting for something in particular, um, because I just need, I need, um, to kind of clear out the distractions and I need to focus solely on what I'm praying about, what I'm talking to the Lord about. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious, you know, one, do you guys fast? Uh, and and how do you go about doing that? But then um, how do you find those things that you're fasting and praying for?
2: Yeah, I would say I clearly have not fasted in a while <laughs> just by my physique. <laughs> but uh, you're tall, you wear it well. The last couple of years when I did fast, um, it would be so that I could learn to suffer better. And when I did, and when I felt that hunger, I would go to the Lord. And it just made me a lot more connected with scripture and uh, it was super beneficial. And then I met my wife and she's a foodie like me and now she's pregnant. I don't think this is going to air for long enough to where we will have told people we haven't yet, but uh, we will here. (laughs) You are, you're skating on thin ice, brother. What are you doing? She's hungrier now is what I'm saying. So no fasting going on currently.
0: So the interesting, interesting thing with fasting is I've been fasting uh, for years, but not in this context. Right. So I've been doing intermittent fasting for probably three or four years. Uh, it works really, really well. My eating window is like twelve to seven or twelve to eight. Um, and the thing that it's done for me, Zach, is a little bit to your thing, and I, I wouldn't call it suffering in the same way. But it's like if you're used to eating and your eating window starting earlier than that, if you shave four or five hours off your off your normal eating window and you crunch it into a shorter time period, like it changes your attitude. Like my, my attitude towards the morning is like, you know, I'll be up at five or five thirty, and maybe they're doing jujitsu or, uh, lifting and that's, I'm six or seven hours away from my first calories. Right. And so part of it is you just get used to it, but then it's just like, you know, that's kind of a weird position to put yourself in that you're in a deficit. The problem is, and I guess this is where it really comes in for me is by the time noon comes, if there are any delays in me getting food, I have to really be careful because it's like I'm like I'm going to kill the next person that distracts me from this sandwich or from any of these things that are happening. And so like the funny thing about it is yes I've fasted, but I've almost never pointed that fasting in a direction. It's always been about my health and cellular strength and all this other random crap that you know people are deciding that that fasting does and all of that. But I to be honest, I've never even been around people that fasted for periods of time, because the Lord was trying to show them something, or they felt like they were trying to show them something. Because, like for me, if I tried to do a short-term fast, it's like I don't know that I would change anything. It's like, well, I got I got to wake up and work out. Like, okay, I got to get ready for a podcast. Hey, I got to go record. And so, I guess that's just n- none of the the crews I've ever ran and really did that. I mean, did, did that? I mean, you kind of grew up in a little bit. You were more like assemblies of God, charismatic. Oh, yeah, like is that more so prevalent in that community? Oh, yeah. Or
3: um, I have a family member that he's, they're very much charismatic, love them to death. Uh, he'll actually fast for a month just, or he'll fast until he hears like a word from God. Like God gives him a word that he can like for each one of his kids. And then he'll, he'll wait. He won't eat until that happens. Um, which is, it's pretty, pretty extreme on my end. Um, you look, you can look at me right now on camera and you know, I don't go a day without a meal. So, um, I, I, I feel like fasting is, um, the point of fasting is to, to break everything off of you and to point everything towards God. And so sometimes food is not that thing. Sometimes maybe it's me watching TV or me um, reading fiction and not focusing on the word. Um, finding a way that when I have that downtime or I have that dead time that I, that I put it towards God um, and put it towards, you know, what he asked for me. But um, biblically, they fasted from food. Um, I did the Daniel fast at uh, Life Church one time. So uh, that was fun. I did that to lose weight. So. Yeah.
0: Um, I guess that was probably the last time I did a fast yeah. for any particular reason. And I guess I was really consumed with the scripture talking about, you know, basically not having a scrunched up face while you're fasting. And like, I didn't do a very good job of that back then. The funniest thing about my Daniel fast experience, cause yeah, you know, you lose weight and you do all those different things. Like I apparently had no idea how to cook real garlic. And so I left the, the skin or the shell on it. And uh-huh. so I'm making this like Daniel fast approved, like soup or whatever. And there's literally like garlic mm-hmm. In or Leah leaves in there, and I'm like, I had no idea. I just thought it was gross because it was like a you know specific for that diet. But no, it's is that I was a moron. Like that was a complete difference. So that was my my thing for
1: it. The, the only thing I was going to say about that, um, and again, I haven't fasted from food or, or any other type of fast much. But um, in the purpose, um, did it not that long ago actually? Um, just, just to really because I, you know I didn't feel like my conversation and my prayer of the Lord was was um I don't want to say deep enough, but there's just so much distraction and I really needed to be like kind of pushed to really focus on the Lord and rely on the Lord and something that you talk about guys in your foxhole a lot, uh, something that I just want to bring this up. Um, there's another, you know, older, um, gentleman of a friend of mine. And so, you know, we're talking about, we're praying together and I'm, I'm uh, expressing some of my prayer requests to him and you know, he mentioned, and, and we usually have a breakfast together. And, and I'm not eating and he's, like, oh, aren't you eating? Well, you, know, you don't want to tell people when you're fasting, but obviously I expressed to him, I was like, all right, I'm fasting with you. And it meant a whole lot to me. So for that whole day, for, for a 24 hour, almost 36 hour period, he and I fasted together. And It meant a lot to me. I was like, man, that's someone who's in my corner. And, um, probably one of the more meaningful things anybody's ever done for me. And it seems kind of crazy just that someone would be willing to forego something like that with you. Um, so just for what it's worth, um, I think, you know, it's something that, uh, I think it's meaningful when you have people like that in your life.
0: Well, Zach, what did you say? You said suffering well, like I know a lot of people like in the wrestling, wrestling MMA community, things like that, like weight cutting and the, some fighters, you know, in, in some of the, the biggest organizations, even championship level fighters. Um, they're so big. They're so enormous that they, they have to start their weight cut weeks in advance. And, One of the things that you'll see a lot of times, especially in the week of the fight, when you're doing your kind of final weight cut, and it's it's more scientific now than it was back in the day, where you basically put on trash bags and go sweat until you almost essentially die. It's a much more scientific now. But when you're sitting in the sauna and you're literally just sitting there sweating out pounds so that you can get on the scale and you know make the scale and you can go fight, their teammates will be in there in the sauna with them, and it's like the the coaches that are going to be with them in their corner uh, are are suffering with them because, I mean, there's.
2: Because you have to be able to trust those guys. Yeah. And when it's their fight in three months, you're going to be the guy in the sauna with them. You're in their corner, like Russell was saying.
0: Well, and that's kind of why whenever I talk about the foxhole so much, that's why, and I've, I've picked on the model for a long time. And I know there's a lot of ministries out there that disagree with me, but I hate the men's ministry model of, oh, you don't know any of these guys. Great. Here's your workbook. Go and sit in a circle with these guys and y'all are going to talk. It's like, oh. I'm going to sit around with these guys that I've accomplished nothing with that I have no idea if I can trust. I'm just going to supposed to, you know, just let my heart come, come through in these, in these moments. Right. So for the
2: record, I've worked on Kyle's plumbing. That's, I mean, we go way back now. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are really close. (laughs) It's, it's a big deal. He
0: like, he knows more about me than you would ever want to know. But like the thing about it is, is I tell people like, you've got to accomplish something together. That's why I encourage people like doing hard things jiu-jitsu, rucking, you know, these backpacking trips or doing things like that. Like that's where you figure out who a guy is. That's where you figure out where the whiners are, the complainers are, the people that you can trust. It's what, you know, my buddy Joby Martin calls, he calls your four corner friends. So the guys that carried that guy on the mat and, you know, you know, busted through this dude's roof and like just to get him to Jesus, you know, I call him 3am friends. It's those people that, you know, regardless of the request, they're ready to throw down. And it's like having those types of guys around you. And so it's like, you know, maybe that's another corollary for people is like, who are the guys in your life that, you know, would fast with you at the, like, cause it wasn't like that guy planned. He woke up that morning. He's like, all right, I'm starting to fast today. But who are those guys in your life that you could call and be like, I know this is a really weird request and I know you probably got plans, but I'm fasting over the next two days. And I was hoping you could do that with me. Yeah. you like, going
2: have guys that are that yeah. selfless that will drop it all um, at the of a hat i mean and you just said it uh Joby said his four corner guys i yeah. like that a lot because those are the guys carrying the four corners oh and he the calls the, the,
0: the lower you through the roof friends right like that's that's, that's a different kind how of how many miles did they
2: carry the paralytic on that mat you know for you know 50 miles to go to the next town to just to, to see christ i mean that is a some sort of dedication that we don't even know about
0: yeah, absolutely. So good uh, good stuff on, you know, going into the discussion on, on fasting. Ryan, could you read uh, verses 5 and 6?
3: And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the of Israel, which we've sinned against you, even I, and my father's house have sinned. Sorry, I I, I highlighted a lot there, so I kind of lost my track. (laughs) We were literally
0: making fun of him like a second ago because it's like, if you highlight every word except for three or four words, you might as well not have highlighted anything, and then it makes it hard to read.
3: It does make it hard to read. I've learned my lesson. That's okay. See, Thanks for being my four corner guy.
0: <laughs> if you just underline it, it should be good to go. But the, the point is, is like verses four through, uh, through 12, the, these are, or four through 11, rather, this is Nehemiah's prayer. And the thing that I found very interesting is that Nehemiah begins his prayer with confession. And you would think, well, that's weird. Like five minutes ago, you didn't even know like the, the walls uh, were, were torn down and that the people were all depressed and in a bad way. And now you're confessing? What are you confessing? And it's like he understands that there's a generational component to what's happening here. And also he understands the greater point of like what you were talking about with Pat Tillman in New York and just Americans in general. It's like these are his people. And he assumes <clears throat> he doesn't want to assume that he has no role in the negativity that has befallen his people.
3: Well, I think right. it, when it comes down to his people is, and, and why they're going through what they're going through right now is his people broke the covenant with God and God brought the Persians in as a consequence to the breaking of the covenant. And so i like you said, this, this prayer is a confessional. Uh, he pleads for mercy, uh, but also acknowledges his own personal sin and the sin of his community, which I think is pretty right. amazing. He's- Tying
2: himself in yeah. with all Israelites and his heritage and the people who broke the covenant, he's saying to God in this moment, I am one of them. So please, uh, you know, hear my requests and allow me, uh, if it's your will, to go be helpful in the situation. But yeah, yes. Uh praying and repenting for the heritage of his people.
3: I'm gonna try to read this again. And I hope I don't mess up, but just, I'm just really- follow your <laughs> finger,
0: you know, do it like how they teach the chillins. I like
3: how it says, "O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I mean, we're all fathers here or soon to be fathers here. Amen. Um, we catechize our children, you know, at least I hope you guys are all catechizing your children. Um, if you're not definitely hit me up. So, um, but one of the catechisms that, you know, my kids and I go over all the time is um, how can we glorify God? And they always answer back by loving him and keeping his commands and laws, you know? Um, and that's something that Nehemiah is seeing in here. It's like, you're a God who holds his covenant and we need to hold our covenant and our love for you and keeping your commands and law. And so that basically means, you know, not only in the Old Testament it was this prudent, but it's prudent now, you know? Um, we, we like to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Um, Some people do, and it, it comes down; it's all the same. His commands and His law are how we glorify Him, not only through being obedient to those, but also through loving.
2: Right, it's like He's asking the Lord to give Him the opportunity to pull up the bootstraps of the past and allow Him to step in uh, the place of, you know, His ancestors and be able to go and do this great thing. He's
3: just like just asking the Lord for the opportunity. What's up? Given too much away. I mean, that's basically the route that he's headed.
0: Yeah, no spoiler alerts here, okay? Right, because we don't want to go ahead in the story. But like the other thing that's that's great about verse six is it, it kind of calls into question his... Um, allegiance, I guess you could say, because again, and we'll get more, you know, at the end of this uh, discussion, we'll talk more about, you know, what a cupbearer is and their, their importance and whatever, but he doesn't seem fully committed to Artaxerxes. And in that day, you couldn't really survive in an inner circle of a man who saw himself as a God. If you weren't fully dedicated to that person because they kind of had ways of figuring out whether or not you were fully dedicated to them, even though his job was fairly extreme and the things that he had to risk in order to serve, you know, within Artaxerxes' uh, you know, family and that, that type of a thing. So I thought that was a very interesting thing as well. Russell, could you read 7, 8, and 9, por favor? Sure.
1: Verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you have, you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell.
0: So verse eight, so NASB, NASB and ESB, ESV are the same here. It starts with the word remember. And so this is a plea for God's activation. Okay, so this is not, that's one thing for everyone to understand that's listening to this. God didn't forget anything. So he wasn't like, ah, oh, can you please remember this? Like, hey, I need to remind you of something. This is a plea for him to hit, you know, hit the activation button. That, that's really the whole setup. But verses eight and nine, it frames his petition to God based on what God has already done for Moses and the Israelites. So this shows that he is very well, uh, well acquainted with what we see in the book of Exodus, what we see with Moses and Pharaoh and, and everything that went down in Egypt with the Israelites. And so it's, it's a good corollary for us because this whole book seems ancient, right? Because it is, it's everything in it is thousands of years old, but even in our day, even in our advanced technology and our advanced age and the things that we understand, we can still learn to lean on what God has done for other people, groups that aren't even tangentially related to who we are in this moment, because that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. Now you can make the argument, well, you know, they're, they're Israelites different. It's different today. You know, Protestant Reformation, like you can, you can go a whole different million different directions with this, but that was something for me that I had never noticed. In and I've read Nehemiah a lot. I've read Nehemiah one uh, a lot as well. I never remember. It's like, oh, he's framing this in the finished work of what God has already done in Exodus. I thought that was awesome.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, and that's one thing that, you know, scribes, scholars, you know, even when you get into the New Testament, how often they go back to look at God's faithfulness, how they use that as a reference point. We're so bad at that. We're so bad. We don't have to know anything. We just Google it, you know? And, and I think this is, you know, you spe- mentioned catechizing your children. I think that's what our, our children need to know these things to where, you know, they don't have to Google it. Um, and same with, you know, even just they have to know that I love them and that, that my wife loves them and will be there for them. Right. No matter what happens in life. And so, um, I mean, it's huge. It's huge that we need to do uh, as men, um, to be those guys who are memorizing scripture and in our word enough that, you know, we don't have to have Google.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. Nehemiah might be just, uh, saying that he remembers the word that you commanded your servant Moses and not, you know, assuming that God has forgot, but he could have put an eye in front of remember there and just said, uh, you know, I remember the word that you commanded your, your servant Moses. Um. To keep the covenants. In.
3: I think it's great that he's he's coming with a heart of repentance. Um and that's something we don't see a lot of these days when we make our mistakes from last week. Yeah, Mistakers from mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh from our sins, you know. Um they if we look at it, they've sinned against God. Israel Israel and Judah have sinned against God. There's a consequence of their sin. He's repenting of that sin and he's asking God, you know, he knows God and remembers. He's just saying, you know, like like Zach said, you know, it's a reminder for him. Like you've made this covenant with us, um, you know. Let's we repent of this, and you know, I want to keep that covenant going. I want to make this right.
2: And it's kind of remarkable that you know he's remembering this. So he must have heard all these um, stories and um, Old Testament books, or you know, the stories of Moses from his father, or yeah, like oral you know, down the line, Yeah, oral tradition from. Even though he's been outcast or uh, you know displaced eight hundred miles away, he still heard all this and he's he's remembered it.
3: He's a cupbearer too, so I mean that he had to come from a I would assume a strong line to be a cupbearer in a Persian king's um, uh, household. Right. Yeah. So. Let's
0: actually go there. And one thing I did want to mention is that also a reminder reminder of God's goodness and provision. Because especially right now, when he's, because, you know, some of the stuff I read, it's like, hey, he wasn't just sad for a bit. He was sad for a stretch. Like he was sad for a very long time, which will bleed over into Nehemiah 2, which we'll talk uh, for next week. Zach, how about you close this out? Read verses 10 and 11, please.
2: Verse 10 and ESV. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed for your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king.
0: So let's talk about being a cupbearer. So people typically know now that a cupbearer is somebody who would drink the wine of the king before the king would drink it. The reason is, is because poisoning was a very uh, common way of killing people that you wanted killed in that day. And so to prevent that from happening, they would not only have the cupbearer drink from the cup that the king would drink from, but the entire royal family. And so that's kind of the difference, like... It's not, it wouldn't be much help if, you know, you kept the king from dying, but then everybody else in there got poisoned because you didn't do that. And so that was their number one job. And they also guarded the cups, right? It wasn't like, all right, somebody put the cups out and the servants poured it in there. All right, I'm going to go around and drink and, you know, roll my, roll the roulette wheel here. Like they were protecting the cups. They were, they were overseeing the liquid that was put into these cups and all of that. And if the Royal family was killed, it was shame, on that person and their entire family line there would probably be ramifications for that person's family that was still alive in that day but Ryan your point is is right on like he didn't apply for this job he didn't answer an indeed ad like he just like this was something that he was set up for and you could say even providential providentially god put him in that area for a very particular reason because again especially when we get into uh, Nehemiah 2 There's so much that doesn't make sense in terms of the interaction between him and King Artaxerxes. And if King Artaxerxes saw Nehemiah just as some peon servant that was keeping him from dying, like I don't think we would see the interaction between those two in Nehemiah 2, which, again, I'm I'm teeing up a lot for next week. Is there anything other specific stuff that y'all know in terms of Cutbear?
3: Go ahead. Oh, not Cutbear. I just thought it was pretty cool if you look at the mirroring of this story and Joseph and how Joseph became, you know, he was a slave and prisoner and then became the governor of Egypt, you know, and like, this is just kind of foreshadowing what Nehemiah is kind of going through. Thought so that was pretty cool. I wanted to bring that up a lot. Yeah, and they were, that they were placed there. They were placed like there providentially because Joseph actually was able to save his family in seven years of famine. And without him being there, his, you know, the line could have died off.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, Queen, Queen Esther, Daniel in Babylon, I mean, the Lord, I mean, just how he's got these people provident. in places that really shouldn't be um you know one of the commentaries i thought this was kind of neat um obviously we know those facts about a cupbearer but it also says um, a man who stood that close to the king in public had to be handsome cultured knowledgeable in court procedures and able to converse with the king and advise him if asked um so because he had access to the king the cup the cupbearer was a man of great influence which he could use for good or for evil right so i mean
0: so I'm actually really glad that you read that it, it, it brought up something to mind. Um, so I have a book list on my website, the 100 books, every modern Christian man should read list, And I have like seven, eight or nine, like bullet points as to, Hey, before you even look at this book list, here are some things to keep in mind. And some of it's like, Hey, it's a living list. And so, some, you know, I'll take books off and put books on, you know, but one of the, the warnings, I guess, is like, not all of these books come from a Christian worldview. So these are not all books that you will be able to purchase at your local Christian bookstore. And two of the books that are on that list are The Prince by Machiavelli and The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And I remember back, like, back in like 2017, like one of the first ever interviews I gave, I can't remember the guy's show, but this was, you know, former preacher's kid is very more secular, kind of new agey now or whatever. Great interviewer though. He went to my book list and he was shocked. To see those two books on there, because Forty Eight Laws of Power is banned pretty much in every federal prison in America because it's a book about manipulation, like how to manipulate people. I love that book. It's like a top ten book for me, and I love uh, The Prince by Machiavelli as well. And people are like, "Wait a minute, like why would you encourage a man to do those types of things?" And it's because you need to understand how certain people in certain places of power think. Because if I'm equipping men to push back darkness, it's gonna be really hard to push back darkness if you can't see it or recognize it. And the other thing about it is like Machiavelli was somebody who was able to literally, he was like a puppet master in, in Italy at the time that he was in the court there. And he was just manipulating people and just moving them a little bit here, moving them a little bit there. And he basically writes you a manual on how to do it. And then Robert Greene writes just this absolute the firestorm of a book, The 48 Laws of Power, and goes even deeper in all these other different areas. And so it's a good thing in terms of like how to understand, hey, not just that that there are people out there that do that, but how they do that. Because then you can look at the light of scripture and apply it to the depraved things that they're doing in those areas. But look at Nehemiah. He was in a position to be very Machiavellian. Like he was in a position to uh, to use Artaxerxes for his own personal gain, wealth, women, food—like just having food back in that day, being kept away from famine—and the fact that he didn't do that and did what he did throughout the book, as we see it here in Nehemiah, that's no small thing.
2: Yeah, it would have been real easy for him to just stay put, right? You know, basically super <clears throat> high up in the Persian Empire, can have whatever you want, all the luxuries and pleasures of life uh, would have been real easy uh, for him to stay put. But I think it's a great testament. Of, uh how much you can accomplish when you align your uh when we align ourselves with uh God's plan and what he has for us and he just realized that God was putting that on his heart and he needs to step up and go uh be a, a champion for Jerusalem uh, but getting back to um you know the part of well, Machiavelli's book but uh just getting back to that uh, discussion there was you know in War times, any general would probably say that you need to know your opponents so that you can beat them. If you don't know what their uh, maneuverings are or how they operate, then how are you supposed to defeat them? You know, or it's just like coming up with the 18 rebuttals um, for abortion. I mean, if you don't know those, how are you going to have a discussion with somebody who's uh, pro-choice? So you need to know what other people are thinking.
0: One, you will fall to the level of your training. That's something I say all the time. Like guys, like when they think about getting into a physical altercation, they're like, well, you know, if something were to happen to me or my family, I I would just see red and then I would be able to, you know, fend off any attacker. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You would literally fall to the level of your training. And from what I see, that's a very quick fall. Like you're going to splat on the ground pretty quickly. And the same thing happens. Like if you bring a knife to a gunfight in a verbal
3: altercation, like it's not going to go well for you if you're not familiar with all those. What were you going to say, Ryan? honestly, I was just thinking of Don Corleone. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. So, I mean, it's basically like what you're doing here is you're keeping your enemies closer. You're knowing what they're going to do before they do it. And it's just, it's just good. And what do you want to say? Uh, it's good practice. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, before we get out of uh, the discussion of Nehemiah 1, I want to talk about this one particular line from verse 11. Um, Who delight in fear of your name. Or, fear to, or delight to fear your name. So the, the whole uh, verse is, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We don't even like to think about God as an entity or a person that we fear. Um, there's a book that I've mentioned several times on my show called Scary God by Maddie Montgomery. And it just basically talks about the right ordering of how we are to look at God. And you never see delight and fear in the same phrase, typically, because people don't want to delight in fear. No, 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 I don't mean people that love watching scary movies. That's not what I mean. Like, that's not the fear being described here. Like jump out, boo, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, wasn't that funny that I, that I jumped out of my chair and peed a little, like what we're, what we're basically looking at is like, this is a fear that moves you and they are delighting in it because there is no more, there's no more thing that you should fear on this planet more than God himself, because Satan is not as scary as God, because Again, God set up the entire creation in; it set it into motion for His glory, and again we we. we sing these songs about how, you know, God just kind of wants to be our friend and like, this is going to be so awesome. And I just can't wait for my cosmic genie to give me all the things that I want because I donated a little bit to the church. And I, I think that that's a very important thing that in the middle of his, well, towards the end of his prayer, as it's depicted here in Nehemiah one is his servants who delight to fear in your name. And he's describing that as a positive. I, I think that's something that we need to make sure we don't miss.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Nasby, you know, it doesn't say fear. It says revere But but obviously it's it's the reverence of, of scripture. Right. And I think, um, I think it's important to note, you know, if you go to when he's starting his prayer, right. You know, verse five, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the awesome and great, the great and awesome God, right. Who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. I mean, um, you know, it's kind of a simple illustration, but, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but the, essentially the, the prayer context of ACTS acts. Mm-hmm. So adoration, confession, Thanksgiving supplication, right? I mean, you know, that, that's just a very good practical way to pray to God because right. You're starting with revering him, right? You're adoring and revering who he really is. Right. And, and with that needs to come just the sense of awe and, and inspiration of who he is, right? The creator, the almighty, you know, um, the one that's holy. And then obviously, um, confession, right, which is what he does here. He confesses and, and I love in this part where he's confessing, he, he throws himself in there. You know, I know you've talked about Jocko and some other stuff. I, I'll confess I haven't read extreme extreme ownership. I have it, but the concepts, I mean I feel like that's what he's doing here. He's taking extreme ownership of his people, of this that's what a leader is doing. I mean he's stepping into a leadership role. He's hearing he's hearing of something that he cares about. He's praying about it. He's asking the Lord for help. Then he's stepping into the shoot. he's confessing that I'm part of the problem. And he's stepping in the shoes, and I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think just the way he's going about this. Then, obviously, as Nehemiah moves on, he'll he'll kind of dig into that. But um,
0: absolutely, anything else on the end here with uh, Nehemiah one, which kind of sets up the rest of the book, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's um, delighting to fear your name is to just show God the ultimate respect. Um, it doesn't mean yeah, like you were saying, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or anything, but it's the fact that you understand that. God provides all the love and joy in the world and just as powerful as that is, it can go the other way. And you never know, just because you want your life to be all love and joy and sparkles, that's not what it's going to be all the time. He could use your life, um, in a way that negatively affects you, but to bring glory to his kingdom through other people, you know, so you're delighting in the fact that God is all powerful and that you've submitted to him. So whatever happens in your life, you know, it's for the Lord.
0: I feel like we should make on Donald Life t shirt that says love, joy, and sparkles. Is that what you said? <laughs> like, I think that would be, no that's, what we, that's what we should go for. Like, that's what we should all go for in our life. No, that, that, that's a great point in terms of how you would frame that. But,
3: Russell, Ryan, anything else on the end of Nehemiah? I think of uh, the third commandment. You know, yeah. I think, I think uh, Nehemiah is just coming after that third commandment and the fact that we shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. And so, um, if we're going to revere his name, we're not going to take it in vain. And, uh, you know, during this time, they may have been taking taking the Lord in vain. So I think uh, it it comes down to, you know, serving the commandment, obeying that command that he talks about.
1: The only, the only kind of last beat out part I want to point, which kind of um, is just kind of overarching for this chapter one piece. Um, And I'm just going to read this, you know, a couple sentences from a, a commentary. I think it's really good. It just says like large doors, great life changing events can swing on very small hinges. It was just another day when Moses went out to care for his sheep but on that day, he heard the Lord's call and became a prophet. So that's an nexus, obviously. And then it was an ordinary day when David was called home from shepherding his flock. But on that day, he was anointed a king. It was an ordinary day when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were mending their nets. After a night of failure, that was the day Jesus called them to become fishers of men. again. And then this is just Nehemiah sitting here. You know, hey, hey how, are the, how is Jerusalem? And it causes him to kind of weep and just let the Lord providentially lead. And so, you never know what God has in store, even in a commonplace conversation with a friend or relative. Keep your heart open to God's providential leading. So, um, I just that—that's you know, you know, I don't, I don't think about my everyday being somewhere where you know it could really change you know the trajectory of my life. But I need to be willing to be open to that.
2: Yeah, and God can use anybody anywhere in his time for his glory. And that's all of our story. The day that you realized who God was and you submitted to him, that was the day that you were mending your flock. And then, bam, all of a sudden, you're traveling on the road to Damascus and you get knocked off your horse and blinded. And now you're uh, a follower of Christ. And just, I mean, it happened to prophets. It happened to everybody who is a believer. And it's it's a huge testament that God can use anybody in any time. And my father in law will always say, well, Zach, God always gets his man.
0: Well, and that's a good thing for everybody that's in a position right now. It's typically usually in a a relational context or a job context where it's like, oh, I'm just not feeling like I'm, you know, really fulfilled. I'm not really doing all those different things. And it's like, it may not be about you and your fulfillment right now. Right. right? And you're talking about like lowercase F fulfillment, like, and God's trying to be like, you know, capital letter F at some point, you're going to get the fulfillment that you never knew you needed. Like it's fulfillment. That's not even fathomable to you. So there's a whole lot there in Nehemiah 1 and it's just really teeing up the rest of that book. Again, I just absolutely love it, but we're going to leave it there for now, but come back next Sunday where we will dig into Nehemiah 2. So so guys, make sure that you read that this week so that you're prepared to go for that discussion. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So we've got one link and that is the donation link. So you go to www.undaunted.life backslash donate or click on the link right there in the show notes. Guys, the way that we are able to equipment around the globe to push back darkness is because we have people that are partnering with us. We don't really sell a lot of merch. We don't get a lot of money from advertisements. It's guys just like you that love our content and want more guys around the globe to experience it. So we would appreciate it if you guys would hop on there and just just join us and join the rest of those guys in our goal to equipment around the globe to push back darkness. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song, Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah